There are days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? Where do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today, minutes 86 to 90, which begin with Louise walking away from one conversation and end with Louise in the middle of another conversation. And we have a guest, Brad Mendenhall of Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hi. Now, if you have any general thoughts on the movie, you can get those out of the way right away. You know, it's funny. I tend to, with science fiction, I tend to break everything down. And I'm not the first person to do this. It it breaks down to Star Trek or Star Wars. (laughs) And, And Star Wars is fun adventure action stuff. You know, it's great because you can have a shootout in space or a sword fight in space. And it's very cool. And you can have great looking aliens and stuff like that. And that's fantastic. And then you have Star Trek, which is, okay, we're going to talk about personal issues or societal issues. But we're going to do it with this sheen of science fiction on top of it to make it more palatable. And this is definitely a Star Trek type of movie. Now, obviously, it's very different because you're not in, you know, you're not in space. You're not. In, in there's no Kirk, you know, there's not a Shatner to be found. <laughs> but it's definitely trying to, and I love science fiction like this, where it's like, okay, we're going to talk about some really deep issues, things that would be sort of dreary or painful, if not for, hey, there's an alien. And, and I really like that. And he, he, it seems like studios tend to go after Star Wars instead of Star, Star Trek to the point where, the most recent Star Trek movies felt more like Star Wars movies. Yes. So uh, it's nice to have this movie with so well cast, so well directed, and the pacing and the camera work and everything is just – they are not making an action movie. And they are not making something you, – you, and you, you get deep enough into it. You're not expecting the laser fight. You're not expecting a dashing – Harrison Ford coming out and, like, shooting his ray gun or anything like that. It's very telling that you got Jeremy Renner, who, a good actor, who can do action stuff, but he's not, he's not the guy with the bulging biceps and the big chin and the piercing blue eyes. He, he's, he's a guy who you could believe has cracked a book and may not be the toughest guy on the planet. Yeah. A previous guests, a couple have mentioned this film being kind of slow. And I think some people go into this film, maybe from the trailers expecting a Star Wars or a more (laughs) active film, and Uh, then they just get philosophy and communication. (laughs) A a few episodes ago, I was actually misremembering the trailer. The trailer has an explosion in it. Like it lets you know something's going to happen, but it is is really vague about what. (laughs) Yeah, and... You know, this would probably be something, and it's not like this movie is old, no. but it does feel like a movie that if it were to come out today, it would come out on Netflix, and we we would all be losing our minds over it. And it was a successful movie, but it's definitely something that would do a lot better if you're sitting and watching it in your living room, turning out the lights. Netflix and Hulu are able to advertise stuff a little more honestly, yeah. uh, because I remember it, it did have a little bit more of a, a, a whiz-bang feel to the trailers. And I get it, because you're trying to get people right. in the door, but it's so dishonest, and it really can leave a bad taste in, in the mouth of the audience. Yeah, and I can't remember when I first saw this. I mean, it was in the theater, so it was 2016, but did you tell me about it? Because this isn't like something I would normally watch. 
I think I would be more expecting a Star Wars thing, and that's like not my genre at I all. Maybe I, I need to go back know. and watch Star Trek because I'm clearly a more Star Trekian person. Like I don't care about fight scenes. I just want to get lost and well, think you, for you a while. You did watch yeah. the Next Generation <laughs> episode recently. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I know I saw this right away because I'd seen Villeneuve's previous films. Uh, I don't remember when you saw it. Yeah, I remember I saw it twice because I liked it more than I expected the yeah. first time. So I went back because I'd have more time to sit with all of its themes. And well, yeah, and it, <laughs> think about it's it. different the second time because you know what's going on. It, and it's definitely a movie that you have to have patience with and will we'll take some thought and it might even be one where... It's a good movie to go see with somebody who's pretty smart and then sit down and have a drink afterwards and, you know, feel comfortable with this. Like, yeah. so what the hell happened there? <laughs> well, that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Right. That's just what <laughs> Minus the drink. Yeah. Well, you can be sober if you want, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we generally record in the morning, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one of those too good to drink in the morning, people. <laughs> Pardon me, your highness. Yeah. Which, which, with this movie is interesting because I think it was one of the first shots we saw. There were wine glasses on the table. So Louise is hanging out drinking, regardless of the time, I think. She's a college professor who lives alone. Yeah. Of course she's. <laughs> well, in last segment, Ian said she had a bottle hiding around. So <laughs> we don't see them drinking, but they, there's alcohol. Now, as for this segment, begins as Louise has walks away from the conversation. We hear more of the conversation going on. As she leaves, Weber says uh, to evacuate within the hour. Ian says, look, they're not our enemy. They've made no active aggression towards us. Halpern says maybe this is their way of being aggressive. Weber, that's not the question. Ian, what is the question? Weber, how do we get you back in that room when it's half a mile straight up? And this is when we have a shot on Ian, finally, as he realizes Louise is gone. And Halpern says, I think our work here is done. It's in the hands of our superiors now. In the script, the shell is still on the ground because it is the looking glass and it is like this little glass dome. It didn't go anywhere because the ship's not even there. It's still in space. So it's a lot easier for Louise to get back in. She just, you know, walks. She's just disobeying orders, but it's not difficult. This takes a little more. We have the musical track playing is Non-Zero Sum Game from Johan Johansson's score. It's, and that's something interesting. Yeah, she, she, she just walked. She just walked in a Star Wars movie. She'd have to beat up five guards. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, they would have to have some scene as like, oh, well, she was former military and she knows how to take care of herself. And then, but no, no, that that's not the point of this movie. The point is not to throw in that stupid action tropes every eight pages or however they have it blocked out in most scripts. No, she just walked and, and, and walked. She didn't jog even. It's even better slowing it down. I realized she gets out of the passenger side of that pickup. She got, she got a ride. Like she didn't even just go there on her own. She's like, someone drive me over here. <laughs> and they did. She got an Uber. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and you didn't even have, you know, you have a really bad action movie where they have to add the screeching sound effects when uh, Steven Seagal, because, you know, you can't think crappy action without thinking of Steven Seagal, when he pulls up to the donut shop and there's a screeching sound effects when he pulls into the parking space. <laughs> like everything has to have. That action, that impact, that, that that sound effects is like, no, there's just, she gets out of the truck and she's here. And th there's a real honesty to that because the point isn't to overcome a physical, things in their way physically. It's, okay, we got to figure this out. And the, the mental challenges and the emotional challenges. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's when uh, Villeneuve, 
That's what he's really great at. And it's sometimes to his detriment because I know after this he did the, the Blade Runner sequel, mm-hmm. which was excellent and did not do well at all because again, he, he, he made Blade Runner a Star Trek movie and not a Star Wars movie. And which makes yeah. sense because the original movie was What's like that. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all forget that because everyone loves Blade Runner, but the action in that movie was actually very subdued and very basic and really just Harrison Ford getting beat up a lot and, yep. you know, basically Duces Machina his way out of situations because, you know, that's what this director does. He isn't there to have the cool fight scenes. No, he, he even doesn't depend on action when people are doing basic things. He's, he gives us silhouette shots from behind them a lot of the time and lets us kind of be in their head. So he invites us to slow down with it. Do you Can you think of other directors who do that, that are working today that do that as well? And... It's the only other example I can think, and it's a weird one because he definitely isn't afraid of action, but Tarantino will take his time with scenes. He he will, yeah. He'll let conversations go on for a long time if he thinks the dialogue is clever, which he thinks his dialogue is clever. (laughs) (laughs) Which I appreciate, and I remember watching uh, Hateful Eight, and it's like, okay, well, actually not a whole lot happens in this movie, but then he isn't afraid of a blood splatter. Yeah. Which is similar to uh, Blade Runner, in that, for that matter. The action is there, it's just always really brief. It right. happens, it goes away, you go back to the slow moments. I was thinking maybe Alex Garland, but that's just because right before recording I mentioned Annihilation and then I do that show. But he's only directed two things so far, so it's hard to be sure. But he's willing to let people stand around and talk mm-hmm. and not have dialogue for many minutes, as I've not experienced yeah. doing Annihilation <laughs> Minute. Yeah, Garland's excellent. Garland likes... And I'm not taking a shot at this, but he likes beautiful people Mm -hmm. and he can frame people. One thing that really struck me with these minutes is Amy Adams, who was an objectively attractive person, and they de-glammed her so much. They're not afraid to, you know, her her eyes looked a little puffy. They did a close up where it showed that she has imperfect teeth and wearing a sensible outfit that isn't necessarily flattering. Even Jeremy Renner. Even the way they shot him, they shot him in ways that doesn't make him look tall. Right. Not afraid to make these people look like people, which makes sense. And it helps you relate to these characters. Yeah. They're living in this base camp where they're solely focused on what they're working on. So Yeah. And their sleep patterns are messed up. She's dealing with grief. They (laughs) should look It's more realistic. Yeah. If they didn't, and I realize in a lot of films, they still wouldn't. If they didn't look like this, I feel like that would be more jarring. It's realistic that if you're not sleeping and solely focused on one particular mission and not really near people, like even if she felt yeah, they've been some doing this for of, almost a month, like societal pressure to conform or something, there's no one there. She's performing. Well, I just think back to the one of the Pierce Brosnan Bond films where you have uh, Denise Richards as a nuclear um, physicist or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, she was Doctor Christmas. Denise Richards was the peak of her popularity when she was a hot deal for a little bit and wearing a, a form-fitting tank top and short shorts and her hair all done up. It's like, I, I'm, what? What's happened? And, of course, it's a James Bond movie, so right. it's that ridiculous is to be expected. But that has been any Michael Bay movie where all the, you know, uh, computer programmers or super geniuses working for the FBI are all Victoria's Secret models with glasses. Yeah. 
Well, that's like the whole 80s thing, right? You're just super hot, but just have a ponytail and glasses mm-hmm. so you can take them off and yes, be hot three, as soon you as take you... take that off. Yeah. <laughs> Not even the same person. I, I wear glasses. Folks, I pretty much look like the same schlubby guy with them on or off. It's, uh, <laughs> except for I'm squinting a lot more with them off. No, squinting could be attractive in some sense. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's so intense. If you're, if you're <laughs> into <laughs> crow's feet, you know, and yeah. squinting's hot. <laughs> I just need a slightly less haggard-looking uh, 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 Clint Eastwood. Slightly less haggard oh, yeah. and leathery-looking <laughs> Clint Eastwood. That's that's the vibe I can, I'm shooting for, nice. apparently. I think he's been haggard-looking since his teens. Yeah. So. This is off-base, but, you know, there we go. I remember <laughs> showing Clint, like, Clint Eastwood's son was in his movies, and my wife sees it. It's like, whoa, what the hell? He's a good-looking guy. It's like, well, he's Clint Eastwood's son. It's like... Yeah, but Clint Eastwood's a leather wallet. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> so there I am pulling up pictures of uh, Clint Eastwood as Rowdy Yates, you know, a thousand years ago. He's like, oh my God, he was attractive. He's like, he was really attractive. And then and then he became an old, old man. But he's been an old, old man for so long. Well, he became old while filming westerns out in the sun. So Yeah, yeah that'll do it. Now, we have a long stretch here of very little happening. Where I was glad we're doing this five minutes at a time and not one minute at a time. Because 21 seconds into this segment, we're already outside. Louise is getting out of the pickup. and So we only get a couple lines of dialogue for a while. As the pod thing that she saw come out of the shell. Oh, no, she didn't see it. I forget what she saw last time. She knew this was going to happen. And so this pod pops out of the shell, comes and floats down right in front of her. And it's hard to see, but I like that it opens as it's landing. Like the front of it just kind of becomes darker, like an opening forms. When she gets inside, it closes more like doors and leaves this little seam, and I don't like that. But we get Ian is watching, and he smiles when he sees what she's getting inside. And Halpern's there, and he says, what the hell is she doing? Minute 13 in, we're inside the pod, and we're close on Louise in this darkness as it gets darker, and the doors close. And then the pod shifts, it's rising off the ground, and Louise kind of falls a little. And the thing starts to fill with fog, smoke, mist, whatever. She doesn't know. And she says, oh my god, oh god, no. Then she starts, she kind of gasps, coughs, and then is able to breathe. And it made me think of, I've mentioned it on the show before, but a different part of the abyss. When they make the the rat and Ed Harris breathe liquid. Okay. Relax now, bud. Just relax. Bud. Relax now, bud. Watch me. Relax. Okay, watch me. Watch me. Okay. Doing fine. Now, don't hold your breath. Take it in. Just let yourself take it in. Take it in. That's it. Oh, man. Don't hold your breath now. Take it in. There you go. Don't hold your breath. Take it in. That's it. There you go. What? It's normal. It'll pass in a second. It's perfectly normal. This is perfectly normal. We all breathe liquid for nine months, bud. Your body will remember. That's it. That's it. I don't know if this is liquid, though, but it's something like it, because they do swim around in it, and that would be oxygenated fluorocarbon, which you can breathe instead of oxygen. There's a great tension with this movie. They pull off a trick that isn't easy to do where you don't feel like the threat is from the visitors, like they're a malicious force or anything like that, but you do feel like they don't, because there's this gap of communication, this gap of understanding, Whatever they do, whatever they pull her into, even if it's not intentional or she's in danger, perhaps her life's getting not in danger, but she's going to go through, she's going to experience discomfort and pain and she's going to suffer to communicate with them. 
and, and you're always worried is like, okay, what's going to happen to her next? And could she end up, you know, is she going to, is she going to come out of this all right? Because they're not human. They don't, and they are in a way you worry. It's like, okay, what, whatever they're going to do, they can't communicate. It's like, Hey, there's going to be discomfort. This is going to hurt, but you're going to be okay. So she's going through, and Amy Adams is such a good actress that she conveys the fear very well. I think that's a really good point just about communication and about growth from communication in general, that, that growth, when we communicate, when we become closer, is sometimes a very painful process. We're learning things maybe we don't want to learn or don't think that we want to learn about other people. We're having painful conversations. We're having discourse that's not easy. And I think that feeling makes sense for the film based on, yeah, just how we grow from our acts of communication. We've all had relationships by with our parents or people that we're in a relationship with or siblings where you, you can tell or you afterwards you can look back as like, oh, the reason why that relationship is so poor or it ended or we don't talk anymore isn't because of a profound difference in philosophy. It's just I didn't know how to talk to that person yeah. and I didn't know how to understand them and they didn't know how to talk to me. And you sort of, with the wisdom of hindsight, you're like, oh, that's what they were trying to say, or that's what I should have said. It's it's painful. It's painful to realize the things that the people that we've lost from our lives or the relationships that are just different than they could have been because of that inability to really connect. Yeah. And usually our regrets come from the lack of connecting. I mean, sometimes, yes, you can share too much, or it can be actual verbal fights and altercations. But even research shows with relationships, it's stagnancy. It's a it's secrets. It's a lack of being willing to to trust and communicate. And then the growing contempt that comes from that stagnancy and avoidance that destroys more relationships than verbal altercations. It's weird because when I was young, I mean, I grew up in a house with parents who didn't really discuss emotions with us or didn't really, like, they didn't have arguments with each other. And so I never really got to see how to manage a conflict in a healthy way. And when I moved out really young, I moved in with my, my boyfriend, I'm a teen, or was a teen mom, as a lot of people knew. And when I first spent time in his house, his parents would just argue with each other, sometimes would even just yell at each other. And I'm not saying that's a healthy way of being <laughs> either, but I feel like that at first it was so jarring and shocking for me to experience. And he's just like, no, no, everything's cool. Like my parents are just like that. And they stayed married until his mother died. And once I got accustomed to the fact that they were just louder people with each other. In many ways, I found their relationship more healthier and their family healthier than what was going on in my house. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm like, oh, they're actually verbalizing these things, these small things, and it's allowing them to just like move past it and live their lives rather than this growing like silence or contempt or like sweeping things under the rug or not dealing with issues yeah well i mean i i came from a, a I, I come from a loud family yeah. and you know and i have embarrassing parents i had embarrassing parents because <laughs> yeah. dad would say what it was on his mind and he had sort of a cutting sense of humor and my mom a little more cerebral perhaps but still also had a pretty cutting and dark sense of humor and they would talk through stuff and you think, oh, this is unhealthy or the you know, geez, what, what are they doing? But then I would spend time, especially when I got to college, 
And I would have friends or a girlfriend or whoever who the parents perhaps seemed a little more put together, a, a little more cultured or whatever. And I was like, oh, but they're actually terrible parents or they don't know how to be a parent and seeing the actual damage that, that can be done. It's like, oh, my parents. And that's sort of when I learned. I was like in my late teens, early 20s, like, oh, my parents are actually fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and now it's, you know, now, of course, I'm a parent and you know, my kids are like, oh, oh, God, because <laughs> I, I've learned from that. And I pattern myself after my parents. Not too long ago, there was a great moment where my oldest is like, oh, Dad, don't embarrass me. And I looked at him and was like, you're out of luck, bub. You have a whole <laughs> lot of embarrassment to come. <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better. And he just rolled his eyes and walked off. He's like, yeah, keep walking. Yeah. <laughs> so funny how we decide, like, what to take from our parents and what not to take from them and do we decide i don't know <laughs> sometimes i mean for for me part of it's been an active choice oh, okay. but what's interesting is sometimes you can in some areas like swing the pendulum too far the other way and oh, then yeah. you're like oh maybe that wasn't the best <laughs> like my parents didn't share anything like maybe oversharing isn't a great idea either maybe like they did this this way and it's like we all end up screwing up our children in new and unique ways like, yeah. but hopefully we get better we improve upon we use what we learn and we decide what to do and what not to do we hope yeah <laughs> but inevitably we're still going to make mistakes and i don't know how far this veers off where we are in the minute now but louise will be a parent she's too, in a pod in the floating yeah. through the air. we can go wherever we want well i, I want to know from you guys and perhaps you've talked about this before but Amy Adams seems such a perfect person to have star in this movie. Aside from the fact that she has some box office credibility, she is a multi-time Oscar nominee. I mean, she's a good actress who has successfully led movies. But also, she's she's not glammed up. She doesn't need to be glammed up. It's not like, uh, she's not like Beyonce, <laughs> where you need to make sure she looks great every second. Is there anyone else that you could see successfully leading this movie? And I, I only have one other thought. And I want to see if you guys come up with the same actress that I did. Someone else who could have hmm. competently led this movie without changing what it is. Hmm. There's probably a bunch, but I'm not thinking. Of... Yeah. Uh... It's tough because to become a, a lead actress who can you know, carry a movie like that, often you're there's so many factors that go into it. You're going to be a sex symbol. You're going to be glammed up. You're going to be... And, you know, Charlize Theron, I guess, would be an example of somebody. And Charlize Theron is a great actress who hasn't been afraid to not be glammed up. I'm thinking of Monster. Yeah. But, you know, I can't imagine if if they put Charlize Theron in this movie, it would be a different movie. Yeah. Because you're literally putting one of the most attractive human beings on the planet that even when they did the, even when she did the Mad Max movie, even though shaved head, mechanical hands, she still looked amazing. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's there's not too many actresses to get to that point in their career where they can lead this movie and still not and, and, and still be able to portray it the way she does. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious because I, I, like I said, I can only think of one other person. Uh, I mean, for me, Sandra Bullock, I think, could do that. Oh. And I'm thinking specifically the one that she did in um in space, even though, again, a very attractive woman, but uh, isn't afraid to not be glammed up. First person I thought of, you might both really disagree with, but Margot Robbie. She has a really good range. Uh, yeah, yeah. When she was the um, the ice skater, uh, the yeah. Tanya Harding. I Tanya. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first image I had pop in into my mind when you asked the question. So it's tough because she plays. I mean, she is a staggeringly beautiful woman, but 
yeah, she she has been able to, and you think of when she was in Wolf of Wall Street or the big big short, yeah. <laughs> uh, where she hasn't been afraid to be. You know, she she definitely isn't afraid of her being great looking. But yeah, she, she also will play Tanya Harding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, I mean, she can pretty much do anything. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you have to go for one now. <laughs> no, the first one I thought of wasn't a good one, I don't think. Then say a bad one. No, I mean... <laughs> you can say that one. No, the first person I thought of was Jessica Chastain, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Honestly, I think that's a pretty good choice. She has really good range. Too. I think she's a lot taller than Jeremy Renner, though, so they might shoot it differently. Yeah. But... Well, even even this movie, I think, could survive with the lead actress being taller than the lead actor. Oh, it, it could, but they have Hollywood has a tendency to not let that happen unless it's part of a plot. I remember. Here we go, folks. We're, we're getting deep. I remember <laughs> when they did the um, Three Musketeers movie with Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie mm, Sheen, yeah. and Oliver Platt. They actually, apparently, allegedly, they had it in this, the contract that Oliver Platt could not be in any scene standing with Charlie Sheen because he towered over him so much. <laughs> yeah, and, and that cer- that certainly happens in movies. I'm wondering, is it really that much more difficult to film? Because I know people, like an actor who is 6'6". It doesn't and- make it difficult unless there's more than like a foot difference because then you literally can't shoot them next to each other. Yeah. You have that- to angle cameras in weird, Way. in weird ways. The actor I knew who was 6'6", and did up doing a lot of voice work and you've heard him in a lot of trailers because i think they only have a few people actually do major movie Mm -hmm. trailers but he tried to be an actor for years and kept getting told he was too tall yeah once you get to a certain height you can only play tall characters and Mm -hmm. most characters don't need to be a certain height it's not part of the who they are so it limits you. I remember there was an actress who ended up doing a lot of exploitation movies. And she would pop up in... She would end up playing like a dominatrix in Naked Gun 2 or stuff like that. And... What was it? Julie Strange. Julie Strange. Julie oh, Strange. Okay. And she actually wrote a book called Six Foot One and Worth the Climb. And <laughs> she talked about how because she was so tall, she never got considered for roles because they didn't want to hire an actress who was a foot taller than Tom Cruise or whatever. Yeah. I'm not sure that was the only reason, but you know, she she and, found her niche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, she you know, and and I guess what was it? Gina Davis is particularly tall. They they mm-hmm. have had some actresses. Sigourney Weaver is also pretty yeah. tall, but even them, Sigourney Weaver and Gina Davis because they have that imposing height don't always do romantic wouldn't do rom-coms well yeah those those are two that they're older but they could also do this part yeah oh Sigourney yeah. Reaver, gina davis yeah gina davis could probably do this part. yeah it would have been great this would have been great gina davis in her prime because she always had such a hard time finding roles like mm-hmm. yeah she oh, I just recently watched a video about uh cutthroat island i was like oh yeah they did her dirty <laughs> Now, we, we left Louise floating in the pod, filling with gas, and she suddenly the wall opens up again into a big bright white space, and we get see a glimpse briefly of the, there's a window behind her, which we'll see in a later shot is definitely the window to the nave, so she's in the room the aliens are normally in when they talk to her. And I love the floor. It looks like a really, like a microscopic version of uh, like the ocean surface. It's a bunch of little really sharp bumps. Hmm. But then she's just standing on it like it, maybe it's a carpet. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Just the design and all the designs are so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I 
looked it up, and this wasn't a hugely budgeted movie. No. I think the budget was $40 million. Yeah, that sounds... Something like that, yeah. Which is plenty of money. Yeah. But for this type of film, that's not a huge budget, and they definitely got the most out of every nickel by doing smart design work. Mm-hmm. And it just looks great, and everything went into the feel of the movie. Nothing that I saw in this movie made me think, it's like, oh, well, that, that, that doesn't feel like it belongs here. Like, they're right. they really a great uniform design. We've talked about this before, this idea of screens and how screens mm-hmm. are used throughout this film. And media scholar and professor Lev Manovich writes about the society of the screen or how screens are pervasive in all aspects of life. Talked about how this film is even kind of aged between 2016, like when this film would have been made would be like the 2015 i'm guessing and that's right around the time that smartphones specifically were like increased obviously they existed before that yeah but by the mid 2000s the majority of people in the u.s had smartphones we see this like technological landscape of the film kind of falls into the background and she's actually integrating like with the screen. So we've seen yeah. her be like afraid of the screen early on. They weren't approaching <laughs> to approaching, standing in touching front of it, it, communicating, touching it. And now she's actually become one with the screen. And we're living today primarily in or through screens rather than on or with them. Like we, in a sense, have also merged with screens. And mm. they're the primary way through which our being, especially, I'd say, teens people in their 20s even 30s yeah raised with phones yeah oh yeah i i get that uh, report from my phone of how much screen time i was like <laughs> wow <laughs> right right i'm not even gonna say mine usually when my students report theirs unless they're under reporting i usually have more than them so it's not good <laughs> but as we become enmeshed with screens we're living and experiencing life now in multiple spaces and spheres and this is shaping our identity and louise again has now one basically with the screen and Mm -hmm. her oneness with the screen that transcendence partly through the language yeah but the language representing that that shot (laughs) is nice where she's looking down at her feet and the ink is in the air and so like her hands are touching it so now she's she's right in there with everything that previously she just saw yeah so how we experience the world is even so much different than it was five years ago Mm -hmm. when this film was released which was so much different than it was five years before that. Well, it gets faster as you approach singularity when the AIs take over. <laughs> Wait, that's not this movie. Yeah. <laughs> or is it? Yeah. In Sophie Mayer's article, Back to the Future of Girl Power, Feminist Sci-Fi, she says the haptopods have brought to Earth something as strange and powerful as their language, a haptic permeable screen through which Louise receives her first transmission of language and future memory and through which he passes in the final act when an anti-alien faction within the army camp blows up the room in the spaceship where the language learning takes place. Finally, transcending the screen to achieve full contact with the heptopods, she's able to control access to her future and make the call that stops the war. But not yet. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. First, yeah. First she's got to get through this conversation. and you know, The movie has to have a plot. It doesn't have to. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying it has to. I'm saying the movie is doing that now. I, yeah. I've been complaining about it for several segments. <laughs> Once the movie had a plot, I'm like, I like it less now. 
Well, there's just this great tension with the scene because it's obviously a case of the aliens are trying to get her to catch up. Yeah. Everything has to move so slow because going past that communication barrier. And also, you could see the tension with her where she is so scared of saying the wrong thing, of not properly expressing herself. And, and it's, it's it, again, that's why it's Star Trek and not Star Wars, where it's not a fast-paced motor mouth scene. They've avoided that, and the movie, I think, does a good job of knowing how to make everyone speak in a deliberate manner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this would not be a good place for Chris Tucker. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's kind of interesting when we think about screens and we also think about the time aspect or all aspects of time, past, present, and future existing together and being experienced together. Because if we think about how communication has changed with the proliferation of screens and us spending so much of our lives on them, is if you got into an argument in real life, probably 10 minutes later, most people aren't even going to remember most of what was said in that argument. Mm. You're going to move on or maybe you won't. But now with the permanence of screens, that discussion or argument you had can be brought up 10 years later. Mm. We're living our lives in a way where it's like the past, the present, at least, and are all existing at the same time, and you are all of the things on full display that you ever were. Yeah, Yeah, I. and it's funny because I make an effort when something irritates me in a text or email or something sent, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to delete that. (laughs) So you don't see it the next time, yeah. Yeah, and and I also, I don't want to be the person... Like, the next time my mom irritates me, is like, well, you know, you said, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't bring up that old fight. You know, it, it, there's a value, and it's something that none of us are perfect at. Some of us are really bad at. D- don't look at every argument as a continuation of the previous argument. Mm. Don't look at every disagreement. And don't turn every conversation you have into a gotcha thing. Yeah. There are exceptions to that. (laughs) There's definitely a thing, you know, the 170th time where your dad says something stupid is like, okay, well, you've been saying this stupid thing for a long time, so (laughs) let's stop it. Yeah. Not at all am I talking from personal experience. (laughs) No. (laughs) There's a term for that in communication. It's called kitchen sinking, where essentially you just throw everything into the argument. Oh, definitely. Yeah. When, and it's... It's a trope, right. you know. The they are the husband and wife getting into the argument, and she brings up how you ruined her baby shower twenty years ago. It's like, ah, yeah, okay, that's your go-to, that's your your nuclear option. Yeah, and then usually when that happens, the other person's just going to shut down because yeah, <laughs> they're not going to be engaged in. Like they know that you're not really engaging in a discussion in good faith at that point. So at my thing that just made me think of is the apple in Funny Farm. Their first night in their house, she oh, eats the gosh, apple and yeah. he and then says there was no more food. And then like lo- long time later, they're getting so many divorced stupid things. Eat, they're, getting, they're arguing. <laughs> and he's like, what about the apple? <laughs> like, what apple? She doesn't even remember it. <laughs> what about the apple? What apple? What apple? You know very well what apple. The last apple. The one you ate when we were practically starving. After you ate the last banana. Are you serious? Don't try to deny it. I stepped on the core. Don't worry. I'm willing to concede that our marriage has been just a series of mutual betrayals. He's kept that in in there. Filed it away for later. The heptopods don't have to file it away for later. They just remember everything. Well, and Tom, time has less meaning. Yeah. 
right. or different meaning. All of the arguments are happening at the same time yeah. for them. <laughs> it sounds really stressful. <laughs> yeah. They're very stressed. Louise is in this white space and a heptapod swims by. And then it, I think a, I can't tell if it's just supposed to be Costello's really fast or if there's a second heptapod in here because there shouldn't be. Because it swims by twice and then Costello walks up behind her. And this is when the camera rises to show what Costello actually looks like. And I wish it didn't. <laughs> but I'm already on record of complaining about the ultimate alien design in this movie. I love the bottom of them, but not the top. <laughs> Who did the design? Oh, crap. I don't know. <laughs> I said his name many episodes ago. I'll find it. Alien designs are tricky. Yeah. Especially for something like this where you're trying to make them look, you're definitely making them look alien and also sort of foreboding, but you don't want them to be the predator from Predators or have them too much like the aliens, or do you? And designing aliens is tricky. Carlos Swampe? Um, okay. That's who this article citing, at least. Yeah, that sounds right. Carlos Fuente. There was another guy who did designs, creature. Peter Koenig, who did designs mm -hmm. first, but they didn't use his. I actually talked to him about being on the show, and he was like, no, you should get the other guy. <laughs> like, well, I suppose, it's fine. <laughs> oh, Carlos Fuente also was a designer for Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. And countless other films like Star Trek Beyond. So apparently huh. he has like a style that we've been talking about. Yeah. Prometheus and Hellboy. Nice. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, uh, uh, there have been so many movies that have, uh, that haven't revealed, uh, just decided to heck with it. We're not going to show the alien. We're not going to show the monster. Uh, thinking of Bird Box. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Or they had designs for the, the monster and it's like, well, that looks terrible. Let's just not show it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's a way to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard with alien. It's like, because your imagination will do so much more work than actually seeing the monster most of the time. I'm not saying the heptopods are monsters, but just in a general sense in those types of films. Like, what yeah. would be the oh, no, monster? It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> they, they're still... Just anything other. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we've we've described it before, but the heptopod in its full form is... That hand at the bottom is just... It's limbs, and then it has a long torso that I think is a little too humanoid, because it's got what looks like a head on top, which doesn't make any sense... Including in this segment, the editing makes that not make sense. <laughs> but Costello says something, we get a shot of Louise, we get a wide shot, which I love this one, is Costello really tall, Louise really small, and we yeah. can see the screen that they're normally on the other side of, off to the side, and all in this white space. They all look slightly out of place, but it also looks like they all fit there. Yeah, it's, it's nice like shot. disoriented or disorienting. Mm -hmm. And with the white, it like recalls death scenes are like transcending over into another plane as well and it's like louise is crossing over here into another plane of existence mm -hmm. the old louise is dead and how she's going to perceive and process things for the rest of her life is yeah and change in, in the script version with the looking glass being sort of this weird like dimensional space that connects to their ship that's still in orbit she's technically going to space in this moment so she is leaving earth right the, mo the movie, it's more like she's there in the shell, but it's still she's in their environment and breathing their air or whatever this is. I like there's a shot. Costello says something. Louise looks. She's looking up at the top of him, mm -hmm. which seems to be where the sound is coming from. But then she lowers her eyes to look at the part she's used to, which looks kind of like a face yeah. here. Although there are no eyes. I still don't. They don't have eyes. <laughs> this bothers me. I'm fine with it, but the, the, I like the design in this story with the seven eyes. Mm -hmm. 
so she she looks down at this regular part and it's like she sees a face that she's used to and it's Costello and that's when she says Costello where's Abbott and Costello says and writes which like he releases the ink with one hand but manipulates it with another so he's he's in a mood and he says Abbott is death process and we get a subtitle for it because Louise can speak Captain B. she knows the written language she can't keep up with her spoken stuff yet but she can do this as it dissipates, we get an angle that includes Costello, and we get Louise. This is where we got that shot of her looking down at the ink in her hands. Right. She just kind of touches it and moves on. It's a cool scene. Like, she's allowing his words to just flow through her fingers. Mm-hmm. She can't grasp it or hold onto it. No, it's so good. Just the, the concept of death process and showing how these creatures even view that differently. Yeah. Uh, because just the terminology, it, it makes it feel like... The, it's not like we could even understand emotion, the emotions of these creatures, unless they really want to make it obvious and over the top. You definitely get a feeling like there's an understanding that, like, oh, this is part of the cycle. And because time is has so many different meanings, as we come to understand, you know, this isn't something that you, you get the impression that this isn't something that they're necessarily mourning. It's just this is part of right. the process. In the film, yes. Yeah. Right. The script goes more tropey and cliched. Costello says something, and Louise looks, uh, we get a shot looking up at uh, Costello's head, whatever's at the top. She says, I'm sorry, we're sorry. And then we get the shot of Costello's, what I put in quotes, is face, which is the bottom part. Which I think this edit makes it look like we, I don't know which part is which anymore. And on this shot, he's breathing. The bottom part is expanding. This should be the entire freaking alien. (laughs) And I don't like it. In my note, I I called it a silly movie. (laughs) Because I I love this description from the story. They say it looked like a barrel suspended at the intersection of seven limbs. It was radially symmetric and any of its limbs could serve as an arm or a leg. Its limbs had no distinct joints. Its torso rode atop the rippling limbs as smoothly as a hovercraft. Seven lidless eyes ringed the top of the heptapod's body. And that's all the description we get for them. Basically this little round thing with seven limbs and seven eyes. And in, in the script, they say they are elegant, lithe creatures, bipedal, but with seven appendages along the torso that serve as arms. The arms are spread equally around their cylindrical bodies, like spokes of a wheel. Their heads have eyes and holes that might be mouths or nostrils, or both. Their necks give their head complete rotational movement, 360 degrees. Material that doesn't seem organic to their bodies is draped around their arms near the shoulders. This is the closest thing to clothes and a quick way to identify the two aliens from each other. Which, they got rid of that for the movie. It's nice. They don't have this long torso and extra head up at the top. I don't know. I like. I don't like. <laughs> you just don't like it. You just don't like right. it. I love parts of it. Like, I love that the ink is organic in the movie. Because it's not in the script. I love that it comes out of them. Because that's, that's very alien. Yeah. They write with something in the air. They get some, you know, they get some stuff right. They get some stuff, uh, not even wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But definitely... There's a thousand ways they could have gone with it. Some of it just doesn't quite, just isn't going to click with everybody. It's tough. It's, like I say, aliens, monsters, creatures that are other, it's really tough to do. I mean, they could have, you know, on the other hand, you have, what was it, um, the Jodie Foster movie where they just took the form of her dad. Contact, yeah. Yeah, contact. And that just ticked people off. Yeah. Yeah. and you get what they were trying to do with mm-hmm. it, but well, yeah, because that you know, that you was just... her, her the version that she needed to see, so they gave her that. But then for that movie, it works. But it is also that long of a movie. If you've sat through it, you want to see the alien. 
You don't get to. Right. Or it'd almost be better not to see the alien at all if that's what you're going to yeah. do. Because, you know, let the people use their own imaginations. So it's, it's tough. And there's probably isn't anything that's, it's rare that you're going to find a design that's going to satisfy everyone. And even alien and predator that both have, uh, you know, alien creatures that for whatever purpose worked well, even they had terrible first drafts. Yeah. When their designs had to be guys in suits, so they were limited to the design. Right. Like the Twilight Zone episode, the monsters are due on Maple Street, where you don't really see the monsters, but the purpose of the monster outside is how humans react mm-hmm. to the situation and to each other when yeah. there's a threat, when they're afraid. So there's not much left to this segment, although I do have another thing in the notes. Uh, she tells Costello, I need you to send a message to the other sites. And Costello says and writes, Louise has weapon. And so we get a, a core cool reverse shot at the end here of looking through the logogram at Louise. So the, the logogram itself is not very clear, but we get the subtitle, so it's fine. And we have seen both Louise's name and weapon before. Now in the script, my extra complaint for this segment, there's a voice computer thing that is speaking for Costello. So... He can say more complicated sentences. Costello says, Abbott is a sign. Abbott has learned from Louise what all heptapods must learn. Louise says, I don't understand. Costello says, this is the story. He puts up this diagram. He says, this is the story of our people from origin to death, a span of 2.9 billion human years. And Louise says, it's beautiful. And says, how do you know the future? And he says, all of the moments in our life are like memories. We do not perceive time as humans do. Louise says, where are you right now? And he points at part of the thing near the end of their diagram. And he says, the end for heptapods is coming. This is why we are here to learn from you and to help you. She says, learn from us. Learn what? What? (laughs) Getting annoyed before I get that. (laughs) Because he answers, the power to choose, not to follow the path of our story, to break from what we know is to come, and to choose the unknown instead. That is the only way for us to survive now. And she asks, was Abbott supposed to die in the explosion? Was that his story? And Costello says, no. Abbott chose a different path. He broke his future, and by his death, he has shown that all heptapods are free. Which ruins one of the things I love about them, is that their experience of time means they don't have that need to be free like that. And uh, But they cut that from the film, so that's good. But then they have... We'll get to it in the next segment that they need, they're going to need our help in the future. Bugs me, too. It's a little too human. Yeah, we find out they're playing the long yeah, game. I, I, I really would have loved if they... Like in the story... This is just a short story. They they just came, taught us some stuff, and they leave. Like that's all. And in the script, they came, they gave people a twelve part diagram on how to build a spaceship, and then they leave. Mm-hmm. They just want to let us be able to visit them later. Whatever. They're being nice. In this, no, they need our help later, and we're going to be awesome, and humans are the best. When they had a nice Buddhist thing go. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. It, it would have been nice if they felt more uh, altruistic. Yeah, but. I wonder. I wonder how many script revisions uh, did they land on before they finally got to that point. And in the original story, Louise is narrating, she explains, The heptapods are neither free nor bound as we understand those concepts. They don't act according to their will, nor are they helpless automatons. What distinguishes the heptapods' mode of awareness is not just that their actions coincide with history's events, it's also that their motives coincide with history's purposes. They act to form the future to enact chronology. And reading that again to put it in my notes here, I was actually... Thinking about that kind of the way, in a way, the aliens are everybody that's not us. Because, like, we don't know what people's motives are. We don't know what they're acting out. But their actions are going to create the future that we're stuck with either way. So they're just 
people we can't control and probably shouldn't. Right. <laughs> she continues, freedom isn't an illusion. It's perfectly real in the context of sequential consciousness. Within the context of simultaneous consciousness, freedom is not meaningful, but neither is coercion. It's simply a different context. Uh, it's like that famous optical illusion, the drawing of either an elegant young woman face turned away from the viewer or a wart-nosed crone chin tucked down on her chest. There's no correct interpretation. Both are equally valid, but you can't see both at the same time. Right. And, and you know, perception is so important to this to this plot and to this mm -hmm. movie. That's really the mystery of it. Just as like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I mean, I think by this point, we're pretty sure that the aliens aren't going to turn around and say, fool ya, and blow us up. There's not going to be a to serve man moment here. But the tension is, is like, are we, are the humans, are the people going to be able to understand things well enough to realize, oh, they're our friends, and or you know, they're they're not a malignant presence, and basically not slip under the banana peel and destroy and humanity destroy themselves yeah. without the uh, I've referenced it before the big tidal wave threat of the abyss or some other movies where the aliens uh, well the day the earth stood still the aliens are basically saying. We need to do better. They'll destroy us. Kind right, of. right. Right. Yeah. Plan nine from outer space. Same thing. Lesser film, but same thing. And well, the segment's already over and we'll get to more of her description of the aliens and from the story and some, the last few segments. We only have a few left. So anything else? I've gone through my notes. This is, it's a, it's a neat scene. It's a scene that does a great job of encapsulating the movie mm -hmm. where yeah. everything that is cool about this movie, some of the things that are a little frustrating or you can see why this wasn't. A billion dollars. And it wasn't meant to make a billion dollars. No. But you can see, he's like, okay, I understand why this. And I bet you they battled so hard to keep them from, like, adding a s spaceship battle. <laughs> yeah. So this is, is a great. And thank you guys yeah. so much for having me on and for giving me some really cool minutes that, like, shows what this movie's thank about. Thank you for coming. And yeah, thank you. If the audience wants to hear more of you, where can they uh, find you? I am the co-founder and host of the Cosmic Geppetto podcast, where we talk to cool people about cool stuff. Both of the Blacks have been on the podcast and have uh, con done a great job contributing. Uh, you guys are two of my favorites. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> You're definitely one of my favorites as well, and it's such a good show, so second the recommendation. <laughs> you know, we're on Twitter at Cosmic G Pod. We can be found on all, all your favorite podcatchers, and uh, you know we, we we would love to have everyone join the fun. So, um, guys, thanks a lot. This has been great. Yeah, that has happened. Thank you for listening. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Five Minute Arrival, or go to LemmingDrops.com for links. to think this was the beginning of your story.